Well, good morning. It is a joy to be here with you, the people of God, and to open God's Word together. And I'm especially uh, excited to have the kids in here with us this month of June as our Sunday school teachers get a well-deserved break. Kids, we are happy to have you with us. You get to see what we get to do each Sunday while you're in Sunday school. So if you have a Bible with you or if you want to use one of the ones in the seat in front of you, uh, please open in your Bibles to Acts chapter 9. Kids, we've got a big story that we're going to be looking at today. So I encourage you, if you want, to be able to follow along with the story. It's got some cool animals in it and just some really crazy things happening. So Acts chapter 9, we're going to start in verse 32 and go all the way to Acts 11 verse 18. So as you're opening there, I have a question that I want you to think about. What is it that makes you acceptable to God? What is it that makes you acceptable to God? Are there certain behaviors you must stop or start in order for God to accept you? So what is it that makes you acceptable to God? And here's another question that's related to that one. What is it that makes some people acceptable or unacceptable to you? What is it that makes us welcome some people easily into our lives and into our churches, but hold others at arm's length and maybe even with a little bit of suspicion? What must people do or think in order for us to feel comfortable around them, for us to want to be their friends? How much do we expect people to become like us to think like us, to talk like us, to act like us before we accept them, before we befriend them. Another way of asking this is, who are the people you would put in your yuck category? Who are the people that you would just feel very uncomfortable talking with or even being associated with? Maybe for you, it's a Black Lives Matters activist. Or maybe it's a MAGA hat-wearing Second Amendment fanboy. But who is that person that you just, ugh, just kind of makes your skin crawl a little bit? And who is that person or that group that if you started hanging out with them, your friends would start questioning you and maybe even distancing themselves from you? I don't want to be seen with you anymore. And a popular term to describe all of this, this prejudice we feel toward one group over another, is tribalism. And Roger Olson writes, that tribalism refers to a group attitude of undeserved pride and superiority based solely on identification with a group. It is the tendency to look down on other people for no other reason than that they don't belong to the group. Often includes looking down on members of the group who are not perceived as native to it. So it doesn't take much for us to realize that this is a major problem in our culture at large. We are progressively, as a culture, becoming more and more polarized. However, the problem isn't just a problem out there in the world, is it? It's also a problem in the church as well. We, as Christians, are not immune to tribalism and prejudice. If we're not careful, it's easy for us to fall into an us-versus-them, this insider-outsider mindset. As Christians, we can easily be tempted to build our unity around our similarities on secondary or tertiary issues, like political views, how we choose to educate our kids, or how we think about cultural issues, just to name a few of these things. 
And what can happen is we can begin to grow suspicious of those who are different from us. And even in extreme cases, if not kept in check, we can begin to view those who are different from us as the enemy, someone who threatens our group or our tribe's existence. And this then causes us to want to distance ourselves from those who are different from us. And sadly, this is not a new struggle for the church. Even from its earliest days, the church has had to wrestle with tribalism and prejudice. In fact, a lot of our New Testaments were written to address these issues. However, in the early church, it wasn't Republican versus Democrat or public school versus homeschool, but it was Jew versus Gentile and all the cultural and ethnic tensions that went with that. To be Jewish meant that you were circumcised and you held the strict dietary standards of what foods you ate and what foods you definitely did not eat. And the Jews did this because God had commanded these things back when he brought them out of the land of Egypt and into the promised land he gave them. As his special people, they were to be set apart, holy and distinct from the other nations. They were to look, act, eat, and worship differently from all the Gentile or non-Jewish nations around them. But instead of becoming a winsome and attractive witness to the nations like God intended, the Jews became filled with racial pride and hatred and began to despise the Gentiles and view them as filthy and unclean. And as time went on, the prejudice and disgust the Jews felt toward the Gentiles only grew. They refused to eat with them and even enter their homes. They looked down on them, and by and large, they wanted nothing to do with them. The only way a Gentile could become acceptable to a Jew was if he converted to Judaism, got circumcised, and changed his diet. So these were the cultural tensions and the prejudices that were swirling about in the days of the early church. Jews viewed Gentiles as unclean and wanted nothing to do with them. However, God's heart was for all people to know him and love him. John 3.16 doesn't say, For God so loved the Jews that he gave his only son that whatever Jew believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. No. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. God's heart is for all the peoples of the earth. And in calling his people, the Jews, to special dietary laws and practices, God was pointing forward, anticipating the coming of his son, Jesus Christ. The coming of Jesus fulfilled all that the Old Testament pointed to. Jesus was the perfect and clean and righteous one who then willingly suffered and died for the sins and uncleanness of his people. And three days later, he rose from the dead, ushering in a new era in which circumcision and what foods you ate no longer mattered since he had fulfilled all that those laws pointed to. Now, understandably, this new way of thinking was not quickly or easily embraced by the church. The traditions, the expectations, the prejudices of the Jews would take a lot to overcome. But thankfully, King Jesus was up to the task. In Acts 1.8, Jesus told his followers, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you and you will, <laughs> you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria 
and to the ends of the earth where all those filthy Gentiles live. And that is exactly what we've begun to see unfold in the book of Acts so far. In Acts 2, God pours out his spirit on his followers. As they were gathered together in Jerusalem, God's spirit came down upon them and they began speaking in tongues and declaring the magnificent acts of God. And as a result of this pouring out of God's spirit, thousands of Jews repented of their sins and trusted in Jesus Christ. But King Jesus wasn't just interested in Jews in Jerusalem learning about him. He wanted his witnesses to take his message about him beyond Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria as well. And this is what Luke describes for us in Acts 8. In that chapter, we read of the Holy Spirit being given to the Samaritans as they believe the message about Jesus. And now it's time for the gospel to go to the ends of the earth. But there is a major obstacle standing in the way, and that's the church's tribalism and prejudice. In order for the gospel to spread to the Gentiles, King Jesus must overcome his people's expectations and prejudices to help them see his heart of mercy for all the peoples. So before we get into the story of chapter 10, I want to briefly look back over the end of chapter 9. So Peter has left Jerusalem and he is traveling about in the regions of Judea and Samaria. So let's pick up the story in chapter 9, verse 32. So as Peter was traveling from place to place, he also came down to the saints who lived in Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas who was paralyzed and had been bedridden for eight years. Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and make your bed. And immediately he got up. So all who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. Now in Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas. She was always doing good works and acts of charity. About that time, she became sick and died. After washing her, they placed her in a room upstairs. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples heard that Peter was there and sent two men to him who urged him, don't delay in coming with us. Peter got up and went with them. When he arrived, they led him to the room upstairs. All the widows approached him, weeping and showing him the robes and clothes that Dorcas had made while she was with them. Peter sent them all out of the room. He knelt down, prayed, and turning toward the body said, Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes, saw Peter, and sat up. He gave her his hand and helped her stand up. He called the saints and widows and presented her alive. Well, this became known throughout Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And Peter stayed for some time in Joppa with Simon, a leather tanner. Okay, so here we see King Jesus continuing to build his kingdom through Peter. Peter is very aware that it is not his power that can heal people or raise the dead. It's Jesus's. That's why he tells Ananias, Jesus Christ heals you, and why he kneels down and prays for Tabitha. Luke is wanting us to see that King Jesus is continuing his ministry through Peter. These miracles are pointing to the mercy and the power of Jesus. And as a result of these miracles, many people are believing in the Lord. They're trusting in Jesus. And so we see here at the end of chapter 9 that Jesus is continuing to spread and build his kingdom through Peter's ministry. And now as we get into chapter 10, 
we will see that King Jesus has plans to use Peter to continue spreading his kingdom beyond Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. Now he just needs to get Peter and the rest of his church on board with his plan. So in approaching this text, we're going to divide it into three main sections. First, we're going to see how God sovereignly brings about an unexpected meeting. Second, we'll see how God's salvation comes to the Gentiles. And lastly, we'll see how God brings his church to understand his heart for all people. So in this first section, we're going to see how God sovereignly brings about an unexpected meeting. Look with me at Acts 10, 1 through 6. There was a man in Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian Regiment. He was a devout man and feared God along with his whole household. He did many charitable deeds for the Jewish people and always prayed to God. About three in the afternoon, he distinctly saw in a vision an angel of God who came in and said to him, Cornelius, staring at him in awe, he said, What is it, Lord? The angel told him, Your prayers and your acts of charity have ascended as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa and call for Simon, who is also named Peter. He is lodging with Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. So Luke introduces us to a Gentile centurion named Cornelius. Being a centurion meant that Cornelius worked for the Roman army and commanded a hundred men. Somehow or another, Cornelius had come to learn some things about the Jewish faith that made him very sympathetic to it. But he had not gone all the way to converting to Judaism. He was still uncircumcised and he did not follow the Jewish dietary laws. So even though he was a Gentile, he was not your average Gentile. Luke describes him as a devout and God-fearing man, someone who prayed regularly and did many charitable deeds for the Jewish people. And this is important for us to note that even with all his many good deeds, Cornelius was still in need of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's because even the best of men are men at best. No matter how many good deeds Cornelius did, he wasn't able to earn his way into heaven. In order for someone to be saved, they must believe in Jesus. He is the only way. And last week in chapter 9, we saw that there is no one so evil that Jesus can't save. Saul was attacking and persecuting the church, and yet Jesus saved him. And then this week, we're going to see that there is no one so good that Jesus doesn't need to save them. All people, from the worst to the best of us, need to know Jesus. As Peter said earlier in Acts 4, there is salvation in no other name. It is only through trusting in Jesus that someone can be saved. And so God sends his angel to Cornelius to have Cornelius send for Peter to have Peter come and tell Cornelius and his family the good news about Jesus. So God's got Cornelius prepped. Now it's time for God to get Peter ready. So as we read through this story, I want you to pay attention to how God is orchestrating the timing of all of these events. It's like God is this masterful stage director, perfectly telling everyone when they should enter. Pay attention to the timing of arrivals and when things are happening. So look with me at verses 9 and following. 
The next day, as they, that's Cornelius' men, were traveling and nearing the city, Peter went up to pray on the roof about noon. He became hungry and wanted to eat, but while they were preparing something, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and an object that resembled a large sheet coming down, being lowered by its four corners to the earth. In it were all the four-footed animals and reptiles, so kids be thinking like snakes and alligators and dogs and cows and birds of the sky in this big sheet. And a voice said to Peter, get up, Peter, kill and eat. No, Lord, Peter said, for I have never eaten anything impure and ritually unclean. Again, a second time, the voice said to him, What God has made clean, do not call impure. This happened three times, and suddenly the object was taken up into heaven. So at this same time that Cornelius' men are approaching the city, Peter's up on this roof praying, and to his surprise and amazement, the sheet comes down out of heaven filled with all kinds of animals. And he hears this voice tell him, Get up, Peter. Kill and eat. And Peter can't believe his ears or his eyes. As a good Jew, he has never eaten anything unclean. And yet, here in this sheet, where this mix of clean and unclean animals all jostling and bumping into each other, and even though Peter was hungry, the thought of eating such animals was revolting to him. And he immediately cried out, No, Lord. Well, apparently, Peter must have been quite flustered by the sight of all these animals in the sheep because he just put two words together that have no business going together. No, Lord. (laughs) It's either one or the other. Either he's not the Lord and you're free to just dismiss what he says or he is the Lord and then you must do what he says. But saying no, Lord, is not an option. It doesn't make sense. But before we poke too much fun at old Peter here, I think it's important for us to take a look in the mirror. Are there things that God clearly tells us in his word that we say the same self-contradictory, no, Lord, no, Lord, I won't fill in the blank. No, Lord, I won't forgive them. No, Lord, I won't submit to the authorities in my life. No, Lord, I won't stop sleeping with my boyfriend or girlfriend. No, Lord, I won't push myself out of my comfort zone to love someone different from me. No, Lord, I won't. Where in your life are you saying no, Lord, to God? Well, God is so patient and persistent with Peter, and so he lowers the sheet of clean and unclean animals in front of him a total of three times and says each time, Peter, what God has made clean do not call impure. What God has made clean, do not call impure. And after the sheet was taken back up into heaven, Peter is left standing there scratching his head. He has absolutely no idea what this vision could mean. For his whole life, he has avoided unclean foods. So the thought of just eating one of these animals was just too much for him to comprehend. Why would God tell him to eat something unclean? And what did God mean with all this business of what he has made clean, do not call impure? So while Peter's mind is just reeling from all this, 
At that moment, Cornelius' men arrive and begin asking for Peter. So just notice God's timing, his sovereign orchestration of these events. It's no coincidence that these men are showing up right when they do. So look at verses 17 through 21. So while Peter was deeply perplexed about what the vision he had seen might mean, right away the men who had been sent by Cornelius, having asked direction to Simon's house, stood at the gate They called out, asking if Simon, who was also named Peter, was lodging there. While Peter was thinking about the vision, the Spirit told him, Three men are here looking for you. Get up, go downstairs, and go with them with no doubts at all, because I have sent them. Then Peter went up, went down to the men, and said, Here I am, the one you're looking for. What is the reason you're here? I love this. Peter's no Lord becomes Yes, Lord, as Peter obeys the Spirit's leading. So look at verse 22. They explain why they're there. They said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who has a good reputation with the whole Jewish nation, was divinely directed by a holy angel to call you to his house and to hear a message from you. Now, I'm sure this would have caught Peter's attention for at least a couple reasons. First, It's not every day that you hear that an angel has arranged for you to meet with someone. That's unique. And secondly, the invitation was for Peter, a Jew, to go to the house of Cornelius, a Gentile. This would have been a very strange request because normally Jews refuse to darken the door of any unclean Gentile. But the Holy Spirit had just told Peter, Go with them, Peter, with no doubts at all. So Peter suppresses his doubts and agrees to go with them and invites them in to stay for the night. And I would imagine that night, Peter did not get much sleep. He's just mulling this over and over again in his mind. What does this vision mean? Why did these, God send these men? Is it even okay for me to go to their house? What does God want me to do with all this? But when morning comes, Peter gathers six of his Jewish friends from the church there in Joppa, and they obey God. They set off with Cornelius' men. So let's pick up the story in verse 24. So the following day, he entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius, he's, he's excited about this. He was expecting them and called together his relatives and close friends. So when Peter entered, Cornelius met him, fell at his feet, and worshiped him. But Peter lifted him up and said, stand up. I myself am also a man. And I love what John Stott says about this interaction between Peter and Cornelius. He writes, whether consciously or unconsciously, Peter had just now repudiated both extreme and opposite attitudes which human beings have sometimes adopted towards one another. He had come to see that it was entirely inappropriate either to worship somebody as if divine, which Cornelius had tried to do to him, or to reject somebody as if unclean, which is what he would previously have done to Cornelius. Peter refused both to be treated by Cornelius as if he were a god and to treat Cornelius as if he were a dog. Things are beginning to get a little bit clearer for Peter. Slowly but surely, he is starting to understand what God is doing. So listen to what Peter says to Cornelius and all his friends and family. Verse 28, in front of this whole room of Gentiles, Peter says to them, you know it's forbidden for a Jewish man to associate with or visit a foreigner. 
Great opener line. That's just fantastic. <laughs> Can only go up from here. And it does go up. Look what he says. But God has shown me that I must not call any person impure or unclean. That's why I came without any objection when I was sent for. So may I ask why you sent for me? So Peter is beginning to understand the vision of the sheet with all the animals. He's realizing that God is talking about much more than just food. He's talking about people. Peter is no longer to view any person as unclean. And this is further confirmed by Cornelius' explanation of all that has led up to this moment. There is no denying it. God has sovereignly orchestrated all the details to bring Peter and Cornelius together in that room at that moment. And as Cornelius says in verse 33, we are all in the presence of God to hear everything you have been commanded by the Lord. So now that we have seen how God has sovereignly brought about this unexpected meeting, let's look at our second section and see how God's salvation comes to the Gentiles. So look with me starting at verse 34. Peter began to speak, Now I truly understand that God doesn't show favoritism. If you're an underliner or highlighter, that's it. That's the heart of this story. I truly understand now that God doesn't show favoritism. But in every nation, the person who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. He sent the message to the Israelites, proclaiming the good news of peace through Jesus Christ. Jesus is Lord of all. You know the events that took place throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were under the tyranny of the devil because God was with him. We ourselves are witnesses of everything he did, both in both the Judean country and in Jerusalem. And yet they killed him by hanging him on a tree. God raised up this man on the third day and caused him to be seen, not by all the people, but by us whom God appointed as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him, that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. I love how Peter begins this message. Now I truly understand that God doesn't show favoritism. Whereas the Jews had come to think that they were God's favorites, Peter is realizing that God loves all the people he has made. God is not favoring one group over another. He desires that people from all different nations and groups and backgrounds come to have peace with him through his son, Jesus Christ. And notice what Peter says about Jesus. Peter boldly proclaims that Jesus is Lord of all. He is the one God has appointed to judge the living and the dead. Thus, all people, Jew or Gentile, are accountable to King Jesus. Jesus is Lord of all, not just the Jews, but of all people. And yet the wonder 
the mystery, the beauty of the gospel is that the Lord of all was willing to die a cursed death on a tree in order to pay the penalty for his people's sins. And so, as Peter says, everyone, everyone who believes in Jesus receives forgiveness of sins and peace with God. This is the good news of the gospel that is open to anyone who would believe. It doesn't matter what your background is or anything else about you. God doesn't show favoritism. Anyone who believes in Jesus receives full, complete forgiveness of sins. Jesus alone can provide the peace with God that all of us so desperately need. All of us, no matter how good or bad we've been, all of us need Jesus. He is the only way to be saved. So if you don't yet know Jesus, I would invite you to call out to him now in your heart and tell him that you believe what Peter says about him, that you believe that Jesus is the Lord of all and ask him to save you and to forgive all of your sins. Jesus is so willing, he's so eager, and he's so able to forgive anyone who calls out to him. He doesn't show favoritism. His salvation is open to all who would turn from their sin and trust in him. And in verses 44 through 46, God is going to powerfully prove this in a way that nobody could question. Look at what Luke says. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came down on all those Gentiles who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. For they heard the Gentiles speaking in tongues and declaring the greatness of God. So what God is doing here is he is making it crystal clear that his salvation has come to the Gentiles. And I love what Daryl Bach says. He says, the Trinity is quite active here. Do you see this? God is taking the initiative. Jesus Christ is the center of the plan. And the Spirit confirms that all of this is God's work. Just like God poured out his Spirit on the Jews in Acts 2 and the Samaritans in Acts 8, now he is pouring out his Spirit on the Gentiles. They didn't have to become circumcised They didn't have to change their diet in order to be saved. In fact, Peter wasn't even able to finish his sermon before the Holy Spirit came down on them. God is making it clear that his mercy towards sinners reaches well beyond the Jews' expectations and prejudices. Through Jesus Christ's life, death, and resurrection, and the pouring out of the Spirit, the Gentiles have become clean and welcomed into God's family. And all that's left to do now is baptize them. Look at verse 47. Peter responded, Can anyone withhold water and prevent these people from being baptized? Who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? He commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then they asked him to stay for a few days. Wow. In sovereignly bringing about this unexpected meeting, And then pouring out his spirit on the Gentiles, God has made it clear to Peter that he shows no favoritism and that his gospel is for all people, regardless of their ethnic or cultural background. So, so far we've seen how God has sovereignly brought about an unexpected meeting. We've just seen how God's salvation came to the Gentiles. Now let's look 
at how God brings his church to understand his heart for all people. Look with me at Acts 11, verses 1 through 3. The apostles and the brothers and sisters who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. When Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized, saying, Peter, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them? Okay, so what we have here is there's some Jewish Christians who are understandably shocked at what Peter did, and they voiced their criticism of him. They can't believe that he actually went to a filthy Gentile's house and ate with them. And so in verses 4 through 14, Peter just carefully explains step by step everything that's happened. And the point he's making is, look at how clearly God has been at work in this. I didn't wake up that morning thinking, oh, I'm going to go hang out with a Gentile. No, that was the furthest thing from my mind. But I saw this sheet, I heard this voice, I was told this, and I ended up at a Gentile's house, and then I saw the Spirit of God come down. So look at how he sums this up in verse 15. Peter tells them, as I began to speak, as I began to speak to this room of Gentiles, the Holy Spirit came down on them, just as on us at the beginning, just like on you. I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave them the same gift that he also gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus, how? How could I possibly hinder God? Peter's argument is irrefutable. God has clearly, unmistakably given the uncircumcised, pork-eating Gentiles the exact same gift of the Spirit. So Peter's conclusion is, how could I hinder God? What was I supposed to say? No, Lord, you can't do that? But look at how the church responds in verse 18. This is beautiful. When they heard this, they became silent. And they glorified God, saying, So then, God has given repentance, resulting in life, even to the Gentiles. Glory be to our great God. And though this will continue to be an issue that the church will wrestle with, this is a beautiful conclusion to this story. Don't miss what Luke is pointing us to through sovereignly bringing about this unexpected meeting between Peter and Cornelius and then pouring out his spirit on the Gentiles, God has now brought his church to understand his heart for all people. What God has made clean, they must not call impure. And so, for the rest of the book of Acts now, we are going to see the gospel spreading throughout the whole world as God calls people to himself from every nation and culture. Well, I began this morning by asking you to think about what is it that makes you acceptable to God? Are there certain things that you feel like you must do or stop doing in order for God to accept you, to welcome you? And I hope what you've seen throughout this story is that the answer to that is no. The good news of forgiveness of sins and peace with God and the gift of the Holy Spirit is open to anyone, regardless of your background. You don't have to clean up your act or join a particular group before God will accept you. You simply 
trusts his son Jesus to save you. God welcomes anyone who turns from their sins and believes in Jesus. So the question for us as God's people today is how are we doing reflecting God's heart to those around us? Have we allowed our prejudices or our preferences on secondary issues to cause us to treat as unclean those who are different from us? When we interact with those in the world, do we believe that God can save anyone, no matter who they are? Or do some people make us too uncomfortable for us to want to reach out to them? Do we allow our differences and prejudices to keep us from building relationships with certain people or groups? And what about the relationships we have in the church? Are you willing to hang out with Christians who are different from you? Who may look or act or think very differently from you? Are you willing to actually sit down and listen to what they have to say and hear their perspective on different issues? Or are your friends, are the people that you regularly hang out with, only those who vote like you, who educate like you, who think like you about cultural or theological issues? Now, please don't misunderstand me. This is not a call to uniformity. What is absolutely remarkable about this passage is God is not requiring Gentiles to become Jews, nor is he saying that Jews have to become Gentiles. What he is saying is that since he has equally accepted both groups through faith in Jesus and given them the same Holy Spirit, they are to accept and love one another. The call of this text is to let our union with Christ be what binds us together, not our similarities on secondary or tertiary issues. If one family wants to homeschool and another doesn't, that's okay. We all share the same spirit and shouldn't let differences over secondary matters cause us to divide into different tribes. We are all members of one tribe, the church of Jesus Christ. We all share the same heavenly father. We all worship the same beloved savior and we have all been given the same Holy Spirit. And so, when you're struggling to love someone different from you, remember how God has loved you. Bask in the love that God has shown you. God has freely, willingly, without favoritism, accepted you through his son Jesus. And now he is calling you and empowering you by his spirit to love and accept all his different children into his one big, happy, messy family. Let's pray. Father, your heart for the world is so much bigger than ours. We confess that we are prone to prejudice. We are far too quick to divide along secondary issues. Help us to become more like you, Father. Push us past our prejudices Remind us again of your loving welcome of us in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and empower us through your precious Holy Spirit 
to love as we have been loved by you. Give us the courage and compassion to move toward those who are different from us. Make us a church that is increasingly known for our love for one another. We need your help with this. And so we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.